everyone, welcome to the Cornea Corner, a podcast where two new optometrists demystify anterior segment diseases and specialty contact lenses while exploring what's new in the corneal world. Thank you for joining us for the beginning of this journey. Hi everyone, my name is Priscilla Chang and this is my cornea loving co-host, Shawan Rashid. How are you doing, Shawan? I'm doing great, just trying to survive residency over here. <laughs> per usual. Right, right. Um, basically, but I've just had a couple new specialty fits this week, actually, which was pretty interesting. Um, I've had a Synergize and an Amplify lens, so pretty cool. I'm not familiar with any of them, so new. Mm-hmm. Anything new for you? Well, I've had a chance to tune into some Academy lectures this year, and I'm trying to fit them in here and there when I can, but it's kind of interesting that Academy is now kind of spanning a longer period of time because everything is online. Yeah, it's like three weeks long. <laughs> um, have you attended any memorable ones? Um, yes, um, it's not the most relevant to us, um, but there was a talk about how space travel can affect the eyes, and I thought that was really cool because I just never thought about that, and of course they didn't teach that in school. Man, I wish that would have been cooler than VSP. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about? Um, it was about how there's currently no evidence of true vision impairment in astronauts who go on long duration space trips, but there are some ocular changes that can occur occur, and that they monitor closely for. So when astronauts go into microgravity, it actually causes a sh- fluid shift in the head and you get venous congestion. So some changes that can occur in the eyes is there's a temporary increase in IOP within the first 24 hours. Um, there could be optic dysedema, coral retinal folds, and global flattening, which causes a hyperopic shift. And as if that wasn't hard enough being an astronaut, these astronauts actually have to learn how to test their own VAs. They perform their own retinal fundus photography, OCTs, like ocular ultrasound. And I think they're starting to do uh, Humphrey Visual Field 24-2 CETA standards on themselves. So the optometrist who gave the talk works at NASA, and he was talking about how they have to kind of brainstorm all the potential problems astronauts will face and what can happen in their eyes when they go up into space. And then they have to come up with like protocols for every possible scenario. So just imagine that, like trying to come up with everything that could possibly happen and go wrong and find a solution for that. Um, so, yeah, that was actually just really interesting and kind of inspired me to maybe consider working in that kind of realm. <laughs> That's so cool. I wish my patients would do their own 24-2s. <laughs> I know, right? Have you had a chance to watch any memorable Academy lectures this year? Actually, no. I haven't had much time for Academy lectures, but um, I have been finding time for the perfect joke to ask you for this episode. What did the optometrist diagnose her pirate patient with that asks about his changing eye color? I don't know. Argus? <laughs> like Arcus? <laughs> well, we're going to go into the Arcus and the anatomy. So that's a good, that's a good appropriate joke to start us off. <laughs> well, I'm super excited about this episode because we're going to kind of go back to the very beginning of everything and the origin of our podcast, which is really talking about the cornea and corneal anatomy. Before we actually do that, can I talk about the new FTC rule? Yeah, tell us about it. Okay, so the Federal Trade Commission's um, just made a new amendment. Uh, It's called the final rule to the contact lens rule, which was released in 2004. Uh, This final rule is was implemented 60 days from publication from the Federal Register. 
So it was implemented October 16th of this year. And let's rewind a little bit. The contact lens rule from 2004 initially required prescribers to automatically provide a copy of the patient's contact lens prescription to him or her and to verify or provide prescriptions to third-party sellers like 1-800-CONTACTS. So this final rule will require prescribers to obtain signed acknowledgement forms indicating the patient's receipt of contact lens prescriptions. So basically, now prescribers... um, have to prove that their patients have received a copy of their prescriptions and we have to keep a copy of that verification for a minimum of three years. There are a few different ways that we can actually provide proof that the patient received the uh, prescription and I won't go into detail about all the different ways. Um, Instead, I'm just going to upload some information about the final rule up onto our website, thecorneacorner.com and uh, if you want to look into it a little bit more and look into the specifics. So um, the final rule will also require prescribers to provide patients or their designated agents with an additional copy of their prescription on request within 40 uh, business hours. So it looks like they extended their time that they're willing to give us to respond. Um, Instead of eight hours, it's 40 hours. There are some rules that the sellers actually also have to follow. And this is mainly to address the concerns about sellers verifying prescriptions by leaving incomplete or incomprehensible automated telephone messages. And then finally, it also includes modifications designed to reduce illegal prescription alterations by sellers. Um, The contact lens rule already prohibits prescription alterations, but the final rule basically defines what an alteration is. And so now sellers cannot just provide any kind of contact lens. They have to follow what is on the prescription. It's just a little bit more strict than before. Right, right. One thing that was interesting when I was reading up on the rule is that anyone who has a financial interest as a contact lens fitter, so even if you don't sell contact lenses at your practice, you still have a financial interest because you're, I guess, making some income from the contact lens fitting, so you still need to comply with the contact lens rule. And so even ODMD practices have to follow this, even if they don't sell it? Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think this rule also applies for specialty contact lenses, but the word's still out, I think, on how different offices are implementing it. Um, So we'll definitely be attaching some of the resources on our website to help um, our listeners who are doctors who are trying to figure out what's the best way to go about it. There's definitely resources out there on how to implement it in your practice. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, enough with the new news. Let's get back to the basics, and that's going to be the corneal layers. I think we should go over some quick facts before diving into the details of each individual layer, though. For sure, for sure. Well, I think we should just start off like the cornea is so cool because it does a bulk of the refracting power of the eye. It does actually two-thirds of it. So anatomically speaking, this clear refractive dome of our eye provides 43 diopters of refractive power. Um, and that's that's amazing. And the other thing that's kind of we had to learn for boards <laughs> is that cornea is not the cornea is not actually a full circle it's actually oval so um it's on average 10.6 millimeters vertical by 11.7 millimeters horizontal so a little bit larger horizontally um but that's the 2d measurement so even the 3d measurement isn't perfectly spherical but it's just kind of cool and the cornea is naturally a little prolate or ellipsoid so it's not spherical have you ever taken a vvid not an HVID, but a VVID. Wait, I didn't know that. Where do we see this measurement? 
I didn't know about it until I started residency, actually. Um, so you just measure it like you would with an HVID, but you know it's different. The horizontal and vertical distances or um, measurements are different. So that's v- visible vertical iris diameter. Is that right? <laughs> Wait, VVID. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I'll have to look into that in future scans. (laughs) The cornea is also fully formed at age of six years old. So cornea is still growing for our babies. Um, Another thing is that the normal central corneal thickness is around 555 microns. (laughs) So that one's kind of easy to remember. So you have any pack measurements, you can always just kind of compare it to the rule of fives. And the peripheral cornea is always a little bit thicker. So out there, it's around 612 to 640. So the uh, cornea is thinnest in the center, and then it kind of just gradually thickens as it goes peripheral? Mm-hmm. Okay. If we go from the anterior posterior to the cornea, I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the tear layer first. So the largest change in the index of refraction actually occurs from the air to the tear layer, that interface, and then from the tear to the cornea, that interface also contributes five diopters. That makes sense. I remember even with KMK, we would talk about how the um, refractive power from the air to the tears was significant. And you know, that makes sense when it comes to dry eye patients. And um, that tear just is not stable, and it's not smooth. And so they end up having blurry vision. So it's important to remember that the tears provide a significant amount of refractive power, Um, not necessarily the tears, but just the difference in index of refraction from the air to the tears. So dry eyes can really be an issue for clarity. So I think it's time to finally talk about the layers. Um, I'm going to start us off by talking about the epithelium. And we're talking about 50 microns of thickness. And with this layer, it's all about safety and barriers. Its primary function is to protect the eye from anything outside of it, basically. Um, That includes dust, uh, chemicals, microorganisms, whatever it may be. Priscilla, I actually have a question for you. How many layers does the corneal epithelium have? I feel like this is one of those things where (laughs) you learn it and it makes sense, but then down the road when you're like asked out of nowhere, you won't know. Um, I think, I know for sure there's three different types of cells (laughs) with one of them being like the wing cell. But if you ask me how many layers like that, I actually don't remember. (laughs) Okay. So you're spot on. There are three different types of cells. As for layers, the corneal epithelium consists of uh, five to seven layers. The first one is the surface cells, and basically it's just non-keratinized squamous cells. They have microvilli attached to them uh, for mucin to attach to. <laughs> Little fingers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so these surface cells actually secrete the glycocalyx with glycoproteins, and we're not going to go into details about glycoproteins. Um, we just know that they're important for tear film stability. <laughs> but what makes the corneal surface a barrier is the tight junctions between these surface cells. This basically prevents molecules from passing through. And for any of those molecules that want to get through the cornea or penetrate the cornea, they have to go through these tight junctions between the surface cells to get past them. So that's the surface cells. And then the wing cells are just a single layer, and this is what the basal cells turns into. The basal cells are the only epithelial cells that can actually regenerate uh, from limbal cells. So that's pretty interesting. They attach to the basement membrane via hemidesmosomes, and it can take 8 to 12 weeks actually to regenerate if they're damaged. 
I have another quiz question for you, Priscilla. Oh, dear. I hope I'm ready. (laughs) Come at me. (laughs) What's the regeneration period for the epithelium? I think it's about a week. Yeah, you're spot on. So it's about seven to 10 days for the full epithelium to regenerate. And um, we can actually start seeing healing within hours to days. But remember, once those hemidesmosomes or the basement membrane is damaged, it can take months for full healing. That makes sense because when we think about our PRK patients where they have part of their epithelial layer kind of removed, I guess one thing that you didn't mention is that the cells actually grow from the periphery to the center. And that's why PRK patients have like good vision and then it goes downhill and then it comes back (laughs) as those cells are kind of slowly creeping in from the sides to the center over the span of like the first, you know, first few weeks of healing. I kind of relate it to a sprained ankle where if you hurt your ankle at one point in your life, to the point where it's really, really bad, that ankle will always be compromised. For example, I hurt my ankle a, a while back, a year ago or so, and every time I do long runs, I I notice that it gets inflamed more quickly or it's more tender and it just hurts more. So I kind of relate the cornea to that. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. <laughs> I was just thinking how like even if you twisted your ankle or you sprained your ankle, you put a cast on it, but overall it's like it's been damaged before. So Similarly, with the corneas, after you know the skin has been damaged, it may not heal smoothly back, and you're always at risk for that area being hurt again. So that's what RCEs are. <laughs> I guess another fun fact about the epithelial layer is this is where you know usually stain is picked up for patients who have dry eyes, but it's also where iron gets deposited. So. Um, when we think about all the brown things that can occur in the epithelium, that includes the Hussein-Stalley line. Um, fun fact, uh, not that important, but actually two separate people independently described that brown line on normal corneas in these older patients. And that was Hudson um, in 1911 and Stolle in 1918. Totally random. <laughs> oh, that makes sense, though. Both their names in it. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the other brown things that you'll see can be like the Fleischer's line at the base of a keratoconic cone or Stalker line at the leading edge of a pterygium. And um, other things that can also occur here is whorl keratopathy or cornea verticillata. Um, this, that's where you get the whorl-like pattern that's golden brown and opa- with like opacities kind of spread around. And it's usually where medication has deposited or material or disease byproducts that are occurring at the basal epithelial layer. So quick one for you, Shawan. What is the new glaucoma drug that's on the market that can potentially cause whorl keratopathy? Lord, not on top of my glaucoma medications, <laughs> honestly. Um, I don't know which one. Ropressa. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I uh, I wouldn't have gotten that one. I'm pretty comfortable with mechanisms of action, but with glaucoma medications. But random facts like that, I usually don't get. Oh yeah, well we can go into that in a future episode. But the world keratopathy that can be caused by Ropressa is actually reversible um, when the patient stops taking Ropressa. So we saw cases of that at my residency, and the glaucoma specialist was just not worried about it at all. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't usually cause any symptoms anyway, so. <laughs> right. Um, another thing that is important in the epithelial layer is where we have a lot of antioxidants. So we have like vitamin C here as well as glutathione, and they help protect our eyes 
from oxidative damage. So even though the cornea is transparent to visible light, it's actually absorbing UVB radiation and a small amount of UVA radiation that's in the air. So patients who come in with snow blindness from tanning or welders with unprotected eyes can have UV keratitis, and that's all occurring in the epithelial layer. So interesting. We can go on and on about all the damage that the epithelium can undergo, but nobody got time for that. (laughs) So let's hop on over to Bowman's layer, which is 10 microns thick. This layer is actually not made up of cells. It's made up of interwoven collagen fibrils within some ground substance, and it just acts as a transition layer to the stroma. And one thing to keep in mind is this layer actually does not regenerate. It's very durable and strong, but it, it once it's damaged, it can't regenerate. Mm-hmm. Right. It is so strong. And that's the reason why if you have a foreign body patient that comes in and you're trying to use that alga brush burr to try to like kind of remove a rust ring or whatnot, you don't have to be concerned about it puncturing the cornea. But of course, you still want to be careful and come in at an angle instead of like directly like perpendicular to the cornea. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But right, any damages that the Bowman's layer can actually weaken the adhesions between the epithelium and the stroma. And those adhesions are particularly important because they're produced by a sticky collagen layer that's on the front face of the Bowman's layer. And they actually interconnect like fingers connecting together with the basement membrane of the epithelium. And so this is where, this is a layer where you get weakening from dystrophies or diabetes and any in- injury to this layer will cause kind of unstable um, structure or integrity. And that's why you can also get re-erosions here as well. Um, And another thing that's really interesting that happens in the Bowman's layer is where, this is where Banquet happens. I think when I'm looking at the slit lamp and I'm looking at patients with these calcium deposits, I'm like, where is this happening? But it is at Bowman's layer. And it is calcification of the epithelial basement membrane, Bowman's membrane, and the anterior stroma. And this happens because of the destruction of the Bowman's membrane. So the calcium salts are actually intracellular and they can kind of, through altered systemic um, calcium metabolism, they can kind of leak out or if they're extracellular, they can be due to like a, a disease that's occurring in the eye. I personally haven't seen many Ben K cases. I've only seen a couple uh, during rotations and they were pretty bad. <laughs> they were thick. Right, right. And it's so visible. Like when you notice band cake, it looks like it's so thick, but that's only happening at 10 microns of your, you know, slit lamp beam when you're looking at the optic section. Mm. Of course, I can't really see Bowman's layer whenever I do an optic section. So um, one thing that I found that's helpful for me is I hop on over to my anterior segment OCT and um, usually utilize that to see if there's anything going on in Bowman's layer. Right. That's why anytime you see any kind of, you know, dystrophy or you're just like confused about what you're looking at and you just put, you know, grab that anterior segment OCT and try to figure out what layer it's in. It definitely helps with your differential diagnosis. It does. Yeah. Dropping them tips. I love it. Every episode we're going to be doing it. Yes. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. All right, Priscilla, I think it's time to talk about Big Papa. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Big Papa? (laughs) I mean, it's the one and only Stroma, of course. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So this layer is uh, 500 microns thick. So obviously a bulk of the cornea, um, 90% of the cornea thickness is from the Stroma. And so composition wise, it's mainly composed of connective tissue, primarily collagen. That's 
created by keratocytes. And this is so random, I'm just throwing in here, but I'm always worried about pronouncing words wrong that I don't use commonly, like keratocytes. So anyway, there's also some white blood cells actually dispersed throughout the stroma. Right. When you have infiltrates, that's actually white blood cells that have migrated to the stroma in response to an invader. And that's why you see it kind of deep in the stroma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to kind of spot things in the stroma since it's so thick. So when we talk about the function, this one's pretty easy. The stroma is mainly there for transparency. And the way that happens is by having that collagen that I mentioned earlier that was laid down by the keratocytes um, organized very very neatly so the collagen fibrils have to be kind of straight uniform in diameter uniform in spacing and that's what provides the cornea with its clear uh, property and so if you happen to remember from classes or cam care or whatever it may be stromal scars are basically just unorganized collagen fibrils within that layer and um, there's less precision when the keratocytes lay down more collagen fibrils and that's how you kind of get opacity within that layer. And that's usually how they end up at the office of a specialty contact lens fitter because obviously glasses or regular lenses cannot um, create adequate vision with stromal, patients with stromal scars and their visual axis. And I don't know, scleral lenses or even GPs, they're just so magical. They kind of <laughs> they bypass that scar. The stroma is very important for... Um, microbial keratitis because that's where you're the layer that you're going to see the ulcer and usually it begins with obviously there's some sort of epithelial defect or ulceration and um, that that microorganism kind of destroys Bowman's layer and goes through that and ends up infiltrating the stroma and that's where you have the white blood cells and that's how the ulcer kind of forms at least that's generally how it forms <laughs> we're gonna have a whole nother episode on microbial keratitis there's just way too much to talk about there but anyway another thing about the stroma is and of course y'all already know this one but it's water loving so 78 percent of the stroma is actually made of water right oh my gosh we gotta switch that to thirsty big papa <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're right at this rate both our mics need to be cut off <laughs> um okay so something interesting about the stroma is the anterior stroma has more tightly packed collagen fibrils making it more resistant to edema so whenever we have edema um, in the stroma it's usually going to be posteriorly before it goes anteriorly and so keep in mind whenever you have corneal edema uh, significant enough corneal edema um, you're going to end up having decimase folds because it's right under the stroma and we could talk more about decimate folds when we get there um, yeah, and sure. how the edema causes that. But the mm -hmm. next layer we have is the duas layer. Ooh. Super mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't say I'm an expert at this, but definitely explain to the best of my understanding and we can go from there. <laughs> So Dua's layer is actually, it just became a thing since 2013. So kind of like right before our time. Um, mm -hmm. But it was first mentioned in a paper by Harminder Singh Dua's group at the University of Nottingham. And it was like a paper that described um, this super thin layer. Hypothetically, it's like 10 to 15 micrometers thick, super strong, and it can withstand 200 kilopascals of pressure. Girl, what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any real life analogy or comparison for what that is, but it's very, very strong. <laughs> I see. But essentially the Duas group at the university was researching 
why you get different outcomes that can happen during a dog procedure. And dog is deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty. And so him and his colleagues, they were trying to simulate corneal transplants by injecting air into these grafts and trying to like distinctly separate different layers of the cornea. And then they were trying to look at these layers under an electron microscope. And what they found was that um, the separation of layers that gave them the strongest tissue was not actually between the stroma and the decimase membrane, as was previously believed, but rather there was an ideal separation that was between deep stroma and a, an unrecognized layer. So it's really interesting. It all kind of goes into like when they injected air and they're trying to see where that air dispersed, either it like went straight to the middle or kind of went out from the periphery. And then like they would try to inject more air and see like what would happen. But essentially under an electron microscope, they were able to look closely at these images and they found that there's a very thin corneal collagen layer that was right between the corneal stroma and decimase membrane. And interestingly, another doctor actually described this layer in a paper that was published in 1991, and that was Dr. Perry Binder, um, but he actually didn't name the layer at that time. <laughs> but why does this even matter? Um, because during corneal transplants and grafts, what can happen is there's a technique for surgeons to inject tiny air bubbles into the corneal stroma to separate layers and sometimes those bubbles can burst and damage the eye and so since the discovery of Dua's layer there were actually three new surgical techniques that came out of this discovery um, I'm not going to go into the detail of that because that's kind of beyond me <laughs> as an optometrist but supposedly um, as you know people are researching more and more about Dua's layer it's supposed to kind of help with our understanding of why some keratoconic patients get high drops and why some patients who have dysmetoceles don't actually get a rupture so kind of, you know, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done in the Dua's layer, but so far, you know, it's not, it's promising, but there's a lot of people who don't recognize it. And so it's just one of those things where some people will be like, oh, there's five layers to the cornea and some people will say there's six. So whenever they finalize the name for it, it's probably going to be Dua Binder then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting is after like the paper that was published in 2013 I believe the I'm trying to remember where I read it but an article had approached or one of the authors of the article had tried to approach Dr. Binder and ask him if he would comment on like you know his discovery or his description from the 1991 paper and he actually refused to comment so <laughs> I you know I'm not really sure where that's gonna go but we'll have to watch it I guess well, shoot, if he's not going to take it, we can go ahead and make it the Dua Rashid layer. <laughs> as long as it's not Dua Fuchs, there better not be another Fuchs added as another anatomical structure or pathological condition. <laughs> 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 All right, so hopping on over to the next layer, uh, we've got Decimase membrane. Um, Thickness-wise, we're talking about 5 to 10 microns thick, so super, super thin. It's another acellular layer. Uh, just like Bowman's. So this acellular layer is made up of um, collagen fibrils. However, they're randomly organized in a honeycomb reticular pattern, and it's basically the basement membrane of the endothelium. Interestingly enough, decimase membrane can actually be uh, regenerated. So if there's damage to it, it can be regenerated. However, once there's damage, it can't be reabsorbed. Another thing with um, this layer is decimase membrane is thickened at its peripheral uh, ter termination. Ooh, Lord, words are hard sometimes. 
<laughs> so um, the termination of Destiny's membrane is Schwabe's line. And I don't know if you guys recall, but anterior displacement of that line is called posterior embryotoxin. I I really like actually um, talking about this. It sounds so bad, and I, I've only seen it once. And it's really hard to kind of explain that to patients, like what it is. It sounds so bad. I mean, embryotoxin, when it's really just um, such a benign finding. Right. Well, you can always pull up a picture and show them and you're like, oh, this is just a, you know, a fancy word for a benign finding or something. <laughs> I guess. Um, I think I'd rather just keep it to myself. <laughs> um, so we mentioned decimase folds briefly before, but now that we're actually in the correct layer, <laughs> um, we can talk about it a little bit more. So decimase folds uh, presents whenever you have moderate to severe edema and stroma. And um, that edema is what kind of causes folding and wrinkling of that membrane, the decimase membrane. Um, corneal edema is directed usually towards the posterior stroma. And that's because the anterior stroma um, has more tightly packed collagen lamellae, making it more resistant to edema. So I think I've said enough about this layer. Priscilla, do you happen to have anything interesting or something that you find interesting about Decimase membrane yourself? Well, anatomically, this is also where you find Decimase warts, a.k.a. Hassel-Henley bodies. It kind of looks like peripheral guttata, and it's where the Decimase membrane thickens in the periphery. Um, and while we're on the topic of guttata, we should probably talk about the next layer, which is the endothelium. It's only five microns thick and is usually just one. It's composed of just a single layer of cells that's facing the anterior chamber. And the cells are joined laterally with des uh, desmosomes, but it forms a very incomplete barrier, unlike the epithelial layer, and it allows nutrients to kind of pass through in between the cells and into the stroma. Excess water from the stroma is actually going to get pumped out by the endothelium back into the anterior chamber. So there's a ton of metabolic pumps that are going to be lining all along the endothelial cell membrane to kind of um, let things in and out. And water has their own channels called aquaporins, mm -hmm. and they try to maintain that water content of the corneal stroma and keep that at that 78% perfect ratio there. And that's about as much as we'll talk about with aquaporins. <laughs> But th what's interesting is those endo endothelial cells actually don't regenerate. And we actually lose about 100 to 200 cells per millimeter like, squared um, every decade. So normal counts are around um, or over 2,400 cells. And then cell counts less than 1,000 are considered abnormal. Um, and usually less or, or about 700 or um, about 700 is a minimum a required amount of cells for adequate function. So cell count is super important for us to measure. We're monitoring patients for fuchs or if they have a corneal graph or if they're um, pre-cataract patients. And we want to make sure that they have enough cells because the cells will be undergoing trauma during a cataract surgery. What happens when you start losing them is that the cells and their neighboring cells, they start enlarging and flattening to cover the area that was lost. So wh what you get is you get these enlarged endothelial cells, um, and that's called polymagnetism, and they can be irregularly shaped, and that's called pleomorphism. You can have less density, and you can get stromal edema if you lose too much of those cells. But um, next, let's talk about the feels. <laughs> Yeah, so I can actually go over that. 
Um, the cornea is the most densely innervated structure on our body. R- keep in mind that we have over 2 million nerve endings just in our cornea. No wonder why it hurts so much when you get poked in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> uh-uh. Who's over here poking your eyes? <laughs> My younger days. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> mm. So uh, the sensory innervation of the cornea is actually provided by the branches of the ophthalmic division, which is V3 of the trigeminal nerve, uh, which is cranial nerve 5. And the greatest greatest concentration of these nerves are in the anterior stroma, just beneath Bowman's layer, uh, with some branches penetrating anteriorly and going uh, into the epithelium. The posterior stroma, decimase, and endothelium, neither of those have innervation. Um, they demyelinate just beyond the limbus. Priscilla, do you happen to know when we would, or when or why we would have loss of corneal sensation from damage to the long posterior ciliary nerves? Well, you can get those patients that come in with a ton of stain and no pain. And so things that you're probably going to ask about would be like neurotrophic keratitis, if they have diabetes or a history of stroke. Um, LASIK can do that as well, or uh, herpetic um, etiologies. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about the cornea is the blood supply. Like I was talking about earlier about the endothelial layer, nutrients to the cornea actually comes primarily from the aqueous, so coming from behind or inside the eye. Um, and minimally, there it gets some nutrients from the limbal capillaries and the tear film. But when we're talking about oxygen, um, when the eyes are open, the eyes are the cornea is actually getting the oxygen from the atmosphere and some from the limbal capillaries and the aqueous. But when the eyes are closed, the oxygen is coming from the palpebral capillaries and some from the aqueous humor. So another fun fact that I like sharing with my patients is that our corneas actually swell a little bit overnight because of lactic buildup from anaerobic respiration and limited oxygen overnight. So that's another reason why patients should not be sleeping with their contacts because they're adding another barrier on top of the cornea to prevent the oxygen coming from the um, palpebral capillaries. Priscilla, our patients barely want to hear us talk about not sleeping in their lenses, <laughs> let alone talking about lactic acid buildup. Girl, they'll never come back to our office again. <laughs> but we've been talking for ages right now about anatomy. So what actually happens when the cornea ages, Shawan? All right, so some of the changes that we can expect in the aging cornea includes more against the rule astigmatism, um, decreased corneal sensitivity, the basement membrane of the corneal epithelium, and the de- and decimase membrane actually thicken. However, the endothelial, cell, endothelial cell layer <laughs> um, decreases because you have natural cell density loss. Some of the things that you'll also see with an aging cornea includes uh, arcus, and keep in mind, this is an, a natural aging process. So, you know, if you see an older older patient, that's fine. However, if you do see it in patients younger than 40 years old, you do want to order blood work and measure their lipid levels and see what's going on there because they could have hyperlipidemia. Luckily, this finding um, results in no symptoms. It'll just be a gray or white wearing around the eye, and um, it's just like a band. All right, so the next corneal finding that you can find with an aging cornea is crocodile shagreen. It's pronounced chagreen. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, my bad, my bad. Okay, so ne- next, uh, crocodile shagreen. Chagreen. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, chagreen, crocodile chagreen. 
Um, their opacities in the corneal stroma, they're most likely just vacuoles within the cytoplasm of those keratocytes, and it typically starts in the periphery and moves towards the center. <laughs> Finally, um, you can also see the limbal girdle evoked, something that I can pronounce, whoop whoop. So this involutional change uh, usually is at 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock, and it's thought that it's just deposition of calcium, and it typically occurs over the age of 40 years old. Yeah, so one thing that's really interesting, I think, when I talk to students is, like, they may see the limbal girdle evoke, and they're like, oh, that's Arcus. And I'm like, oh, no, it's not the same. <laughs> Yikes. I was probably one of them. Um, because Arcus, actually, when it starts, it starts as an arc kind of superior and inferior of the cornea, and that's technically Arcus senilis. But when it extends circumferentially, it's called circumsenilis. And so I think it's really cool to be like, there's distinctly two different, like, ways of describing this, but that's probably why some students, like, hate when I like quiz them on like slit lamp findings because <laughs> it's just like, well, there's a different name. Or <laughs> uh -uh. I'm just going to stick with Arcus 360. <laughs> I'm not going to expect much more from my students either. Mm -hmm. Depends on how nerdy you want to get. <laughs> nah, that's okay. I'll pick my battles. That's not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you're testing them on more important things <laughs> than benign, <laughs> benign age-related uh, peripheral corneal opacities. <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> but, you know, I do remember for crocodile chagrin, my one of my attendings at the VA, like he was just very descriptive of everything in the cornea. And I just remember I would I would look at his charts. I remember when I started, I'm like, what's crocodile chagrin? Like thinking that it was a disease. And I remember looking into it. And I'm like, this is just a normal finding on like all these old people. <laughs> But it's like afterwards, like, when I start tuning into it, it was like so much fun to look for it and being like, oh, like. It's like, you know, just a little hello <laughs> from the cornea when I'm like, you know, scanning. <laughs> right. Kind of like the corneal nerves, like when they peep through, like, hi there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Shawan, I think we did a really good boards type review of the corneal anatomy for our listeners. So whether you're a current optometry student, optometrist, or work in the cornea space and you wanted to learn more, hopefully this was helpful for you as it was for us to just review some of this. Mm -hmm. As a clinician, we need to diagnose things by the company they keep and the innocent bystanders. So by knowing the layers, it's really helpful when we find, try to figure out what differential diagnoses are and when we delve into cases in the future. I agree. I mean, it may not have been the most interesting topic. <laughs> I thought it was, but uh, it's important to know the, just the basics, especially when we're going to start talking about different pathologies and, and things like that. You know, anatomy rules pathology, in my opinion. So until next time... Thank you for listening to the Cornea Corner podcast. Visit our website, thecorneacorner.com, and our Instagram page, at thecorneacorner, for additional resources, including photos of any of the cases that were discussed.